You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about acute bacterial rhinosinusitis, or I'll just call sinusitis. Joining me to talk about this topic is Dr. Mark Rizzi, who's an attending physician with the Division of Otolaryngology, or ENT, at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Welcome, Dr. Rizzi. Thank you very much, Katie. Well, I'm excited to talk about this topic. It's certainly seasonally appropriate, but before we get into the diagnosis and management of sinusitis, let's just review some of the anatomy. I think there's a lot of folklore about when different sinuses develop, so I'm wondering if you can tell us about when the sinuses actually develop and then subsequently at which age can children actually get sinusitis? That's a great question, Katie. I agree there's a lot of folklore type information about that question. When we're fully developed as adults, we have four paired paranasal sinuses, so eight totaling on both sides. Newborn babies already have sinuses at birth in the form of diminutive maxillary and ethmoid sinuses. The frontal sinuses and the sphenoid sinuses are not present at birth, and the maxillaries which are under the eyes, and the ethmoids, which are between them, expand uh, through childhood and into adolescence. The frontal sinus is generally the last sinus to form, and it's in the forehead, of course. It, It forms as an extension of the ethmoid sinuses into the frontal bone. That begins to occur around age six or seven years, and then continues to sort of pneumatize into adolescence. And the sphenoids, they're in the center of the skull, They kind of develop on their own, separately from the ethmoids, it is thought, by like a hollowing out of the body of the sphenoid bone in the the central base of skull. They begin to form at around age two to four years and also continue to grow into adolescence. It should be noted that it's always quite variable in terms of how the sinuses form, and some normal children never develop frontal or sphenoid sinuses or just very small ones. And on the contrary, sometimes enormous ones develop. And it doesn't really matter clinically whether they develop or not or the size of them. I think this is when the folklore stuff can come up a little bit because I've been told that babies can't have sinusitis because they don't have sinuses. But as I was just saying, it's not true because they're present at birth, um, the sinuses, and their you know, mucosal respiratory epithelium line structures in direct continuity with the airway, which is in direct continuity with the outside world, sinuses can technically become infected at any age. I think we usually see significant infections, meaning those that would warrant systemic therapy like antibiotics, around age 18 months to two years, kind of commonly picking up, but it's possible to develop infections even earlier. Hmm, that's interesting, because I have heard that too about infants. So it's Good to know that there are some that are present that early and that it is a little bit of a moving target as children age. Mm -hmm. So my next question for you is that we know that children with viral URIs or allergic rhinitis are at risk for developing sinusitis, but I'm wondering what are some of the other predisposing factors? I think that 
anything that predisposes children to chronic state of upper era digestive inflammation might predispose them to having more significant symptoms when they develop maybe what would otherwise be a minor upper respiratory infection. And allergic rhinitis is a big one. That leads to kind of a steady state of inflammation in that the nose is perceiving something to be, I guess, immunologically attacking that perhaps isn't threatening, say, such as dust or pollen, and is in this state of ready to go in terms of inflammation. When patients with that condition become sick with a viral cold, they often have more significant symptoms as a result of that priming state. Anything else, there are a lot of other respiratory inflammatory conditions that are idiopathic, such as asthma and just non-allergic rhinitis. And those, I think, would be in a similar category. Of course, patients with constitutional difficulties in fighting infection, like immunodeficiency, would be at higher risk for bacterial sinusitis and then mucosal diseases like cystic fibrosis or primary ciliary dyskinesia can predispose these infections as well. And it's always quite difficult, I think, trying to tease out who among the many children that present with viral colds frequently have a more significant underlying issue. But I think there are a lot of very individual, unique states that can predispose kids to these common infections. Yeah, and as you mentioned, it can be difficult to tease apart sometimes. But even in kids who don't have predisposing factors, I see many kids in clinic who have what looks like a viral URI, and they're convinced it's sinusitis. So Mm -hmm. what are some of the distinguishing clinical features that can help me tell when something has maybe transitioned from a routine viral URI into a sinusitis? Probably the most difficult one of all Fortunately for me, I think a lot of those come through to the primary care world, (laughs) Um, but certainly we hear it in otolaryngology quite frequently too. And technically speaking, an upper respiratory infection is considered consistent with bacterial sinusitis, mostly based on duration. It's felt that if symptoms of a viral cold, such as uh, rhinorrhea, congestion, cough, are persistent and unremitting, not getting better by day 10, then the diagnosis of bacterial sinusitis can be considered and antibiotics might be reasonable in treating a patient with such a presentation. Additionally, if symptoms are present earlier than 10 days but are severe, maybe a fever greater than 39 degrees Celsius or just a child seeming acutely sick, early on in their infection could be candidates for antibiotics and perhaps should be. And then the final category are patients who are getting better from their cold, but then develop acute symptoms again. The typical arc of a viral URI, as as I'm sure you know, is, is usually like two to seven days of symptoms that are quite severe in terms of the nose early on, often with fever early on, beginning with clear drainage, then becoming discolored, and then clearing up. If those symptoms occur and then drainage worsens again or symptoms, early symptoms return later in that course, that would be another situation where antibiotics would be reasonable to use. And these criteria, I think, are in keeping with the American Academy of Pediatrics criteria that were published several years ago. I think that's really helpful to hear because I usually think of the diagnostic criteria of acute sinusitis as being that 10 days that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'll see patients in clinic who are only maybe five or six days into illness and have some sinus symptoms. You know, they may feel some pressure and congestion or headache. 
and they're asking for antibiotics. So you're saying it sounds like that you can make a diagnosis of sinusitis before day 10 based on what that kind of clinical trajectory has been. Yeah, I think that's right. It's it's quite highly individualized, unfortunately, and which me, by that I mean it's difficult to rely on guidelines exclusively to know when antibiotics should be used. But there are times when using them earlier than day 10 can be helpful. It's very challenging from the parent perspective, of course, because what they're seeing is my kid is never not sick or constantly sick. And mm-hmm. and it's really, as, as is everything, important to unpack the history to see if, if this is one continuous illness that's been worsening or persisting, or rather a cluster of repeatedly remitting viral colds, which is, of course, so super common mm-hmm. in the populations of patients we see, especially younger kids. Right. And it's so confusing, too, when maybe one illness they're treated on day five and another illness someone tells them to wait it out till day 10. It can be mm-hmm. hard to know why that is so variable, but that is the nuance and the art of what we do, I guess. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned antibiotics, and I believe that non-typable haemophilus influenza, streptococcus pneumoniae, and moraxella catarrhalis are the predominant causes of most cases of uncomplicated acute sinusitis. And, you know, we see those same pathogens in many other respiratory infections in primary care for sure. So we typically use amoxicillin to treat those when we're thinking about otitis. Is that also our first line antibiotic for sinusitis? I think amoxicillin is a reasonable first line treatment. The microbiological data on acute sinusitis is a little bit limited because in order to know what is growing within the sinuses, generally an antral puncture is necessary, meaning Mm -hmm. actually making a hole through the side of the nose and into the maxillary sinus to gather a culture, which is pretty much never done. Most (laughs) of the data that we have these days... Can't imagine why not. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. There there actually have been some studies several decades ago from, I believe, Pittsburgh, where that was done in kids. I don't think it would pass muster in the IRB these days, or it would be very (laughs) difficult to carry out practically, too. But now most of what we assume is going on in the paranasal sinuses, we actually get from data from the middle ear. The middle ear and and the paranasal sinuses are very similar compartments. They're respiratory epithelium line, mucosal structures sequestered from the airway, mostly but connected to it through a small opening, in the case of the middle ear, the eustachian tube, and the sinuses through the small ostia that connect them to the nose. So most of the data we have, those three bacteria that you mentioned, for example, are from middle ear data, Mm -hmm. but they're probably correct. And so amoxicillin is a reasonable first-line treatment. Augmentin, or or amoxicillin clavulanate, I should say, is, I think, my more typical first go-to medicine just because beta-lactamase producing Haemophilus influenza and Moraxella catarrhalis are on the higher side in terms of prevalence. And so I tend to reach for what might be considered a second line treatment like amoxclav first. Mm -hmm. Also in the specialist role, I'm often seeing patients have undergone some treatment already. And so that puts me in that position, maybe perhaps more commonly. I believe that both plain amoxicillin and amoxclav are considered acceptable, if you will, first-line treatments. Right. So we have some options, also probably, like you said, depending on 
what antibiotics they've been on recently and what's worked for them in the past. Mm -hmm. In addition to antibiotics, though, are there any other adjuvant treatments that we should consider? So, for example, things like adding flonase or sinus irrigation. And is it too late once they have an infection to add those things? Are they more preventative or can we use them in treatment too? I think that they do have a role. I love the sinus irrigations, what we call high volume, low pressure rinses like sinus rinse or neti pot. They really do help to clear mucus and open up the nasal airway. They're very helpful in the more chronic setting, chronic sinusitis setting, but also can probably be helpful in the acute setting. Compliance, of course, is a big issue there. And Mm -hmm. I would say it's probable that a minority of patients would be able to do that with any regularity, especially younger patients. Uh, Not that it's impossible, but it might be Mm -hmm. impractical in terms of pursuing it. Nasal corticosteroids, I think, are helpful, but maybe just sometimes. I think in those patients for whom it seems that they have this baseline state of upper respiratory inflammation, such as uh, atopic patients or patients with you know asthma, and those types of patients uh, would benefit from an anti-inflammatory component to their treatment approach and not just an antibiotic alone. And probably they do help to mitigate symptoms sooner, nasal steroids, even after symptoms have begun. They are, of course, better in those patients, especially if they're being used preventively. That's great. So yeah, we can get those patients, again, who have some predisposing risk factors potentially to start using their nasal steroid in the season where they often get sinusitis. But it's good to know that it's not too late to start it if they present to us for the first time with their sinusitis, that it might help with some symptom management. Mm -hmm. Now, as a primary care doctor, you know, we are seeing you know, the healthier patients, luckily, with sinusitis. But I know you see many of the patients with complications. So what are some of the more common complications of sinusitis that we should be looking out for? Specifically, the term complications in this setting means spread of the acute infection beyond the confines of the sinuses. The most common site of this spread is the orbit, and that occurs in about 80% of cases. The orbital infection, they're more common in younger children and can vary in severity to something mild, like, you know, mild lid swelling, sometimes called preceptal or periorbital cellulitis, to more uh, severe and even sight-threatening or even life-threatening disease. The other type of complication that is seen commonly enough is intracranial spread of infection, This is more common in older patients, particularly the adolescent group. As I mentioned earlier, the frontal and sphenoid sinuses are developing in like late childhood into adolescence. And also during that window, there are a proliferation of valveless veins that allow communication between the nose and sinuses and the intracranial compartment. And it's that confluence of development that sets this population up for intracranial spread. These patients are often more difficult to recognize because they don't have anything outwardly visible on exam. And in fact, many times don't have a lot of acute nasal symptoms. Their big symptom is headache. And their headache tends to be a little bit different from other perhaps common headaches of adolescents, such as migraine headache. They tend to be unremitting, constant, and progressive, and often very severe, and commonly associated with other infectious signs such as fever, or perhaps even changes in vision, like diplopia or blurred vision. Those patients require a little bit of a greater degree of vigilance to pick up because 
they can be a bit of a curveball, not having a lot of nasal symptoms and, and having something quite common for an adolescent like headache. Now, just to clarify, you said 80% of those complications are orbital, but so 80% of the patients who have complications have an orbital complication, right? Not 80% of people who have sinusitis. Oh, have a correct. Yeah. That, thank <laughs> you for to... the clarification. Yeah. It, it's probably only about, well, I don't think it's known, but I've seen it written that about 5% of patients with true acute sinusitis, which of course is a minority of patients with viral colds, about mm -hmm. 5% of those will progress to some sort of complicated sinusitis. Mm -hmm. um, right. Um, so pretty rare overall. Mm -hmm. For those kids, though, that do get recurrent sinusitis, you know, so every now and then I see a kid who has a few episodes a year and their parents are asking how they can prevent this from happening. What do you recommend in those cases? Very challenging question to address with a family. I think the answer there is going to rely mostly on an individual level. Many of these bacterial sinusitis infections occur, they sort of springboard off of acute viral illnesses. And that is an unstoppable occurrence in many kids, particularly the younger, say, daycare population. Mm -hmm. And so preventing the problem is difficult to impossible in many cases. However, in older kids or in patients who do have a more chronic component that sets them up for worsening sinonasal ex exacerbations, such as allergic patients, asthmatics, or patients with like recurrent acute sinusitis, having some sort of a baseline anti-inflammatory on board, usually in the form of a topical nasal corticosteroid, like Flonase daily, especially during their at-risk time, mm -hmm. which might be the winter months for many kids or an allergic patient, you know, during their season of heightened sensitivity if they have seasonal allergies starting them on a, a baseline anti-inflammatory therapy can be helpful. Prophylactic antibiotics, which I think may have been more common previously, is very rarely done in, in healthy children now, at least in my experience, although it does play a role in some patients with immunodeficiency or other conditions that put them at high risk for more severe infections. Right. And those are exactly the type of patients who I refer to ENT. Are there other cases, you know, that we should keep in mind about when we should refer patients with sinusitis to ENT? Because as you mentioned, this is something that in primary care, we, we are most often on the front lines of, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> and most of these cases are easy to manage with outpatient antibiotics and complications are relatively rare. But when we need you, what should we be looking out for in terms of referring for this? I think patients... I mean, an easy one would be the patients with a complication actively evolving, especially if the orbit or eye seems to be threatened, then those patients should actually probably be referred to the emergency department because they likely need urgent imaging. Mm -hmm. Patients for whom sinusitis is frequent, and I guess you might define that as greater than three or four times per year, and for whom medical therapy just seems to be inadequate, either their symptoms just persist longer or have something sort of strange about their symptoms, say maybe their drainage is unilateral mm -hmm. on their nose or just more common or more acute when it occurs, things like that might be worth sending our way. When medical therapy is failing, that's when surgical intervention sometimes becomes a consideration. And usually that's a different scenario. In that case, we're talking about chronic sinusitis, which is a bit of a different entity. But some of these patients, there's a blurry line between the two conditions. Mm -hmm. And so if they have persistent disease, not typically responding to treatment or something 
a little bit unusual about their presentation anatomically, we'd be happy to see them. Great. Well, thank you so much for clarifying some things about sinusitis for us today. We appreciate your education today, as well as your care for our patients in the Division of Otolaryngology, as well as your colleagues. And we hope everyone learned a little bit about sinusitis and uh, gets back on track with their nasal corticosteroid if they haven't already to prevent episodes (laughs) of sinusitis for their patients. So thank you. Thanks, Katie. I very much appreciate the opportunity and all the great work that you and your team do. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat. 